Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Grant McCracken, who is an anthropologist studying American culture for the past 25 years. He's the uh, founder of Culturematic and the inventor of the Grift, previously also uh, founder of the director of the Institute of Contemporary Culture at the Royal Ontario Museum and co-founder of the Artisanal Economies Project, and he hosts the Grant McCracken Culture Camps. Author of 14 books, including Culture and Consumption 1 and 2, uh, The Chief Culture Officer, and most recently, um, Return of the Artisan, which just came out. So we'll be talking a bit today. So Grant, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Would you mind by telling everybody a little bit about your anthropological origin story? You bet. Thanks for having me, Matt. Great to see you again. Um, yeah, I, uh, I guess was interested in anthropology since a little kid. Uh, sorry, that's my cat who will come and go. Um, anyhow, um, so... I started as an anthropologist and I came through the, I mean, that was my chief interest um, as an undergraduate. And then I went to the University of Chicago for my graduate training. And um, that was a moment, I think, in anthropology that at least those anthropologists said, hey, we can study American culture. You know, had the theories and the methodology and the inclination to, to, to treat what had previously been seen to be too first world, too complex, too dynamic, to count as something that would submit to anthropological study. But that had passed. People were now saying, let's do it. Marshall Sons, my advisor, was saying, you guys should go to, you, you guys should be studying advertising. It's effectively pro-brand magic. There's no important difference between pro-brand magic and what those people are doing on, on uh, Madison Avenue. So um, I, I took a detour. I went. Uh, I worked for a while at the uh, um, Royal Ontario Museum in um, Toronto, in Canada. And I uh, there, they asked me to create this um, Institute of Contemporary Culture. So I did that for a while, and that was really that was really fun. But in point of fact, um, it then seemed to me at some point that working in a museum, uh, maybe just a Canadian museum. Um, there was a certain reluctance actually to get on with things, and I was impatient to get on with things. And so I thought at one point, you know, I could consult. I could leave the – I had tenure there, um, but with almost no reluctance. I just thought, damn it, um, I could leave this museum world and, and, and take, up a, uh, take up a series of consulting gigs. And that might make enough money to sustain me. You know, I could consult half the year and then um, – uh, um, and do my own anthropology the other half of the year. So that was the model. Um, it's not a very profitable model, I have to say, is just as a word of warning. You do make enough money in half the year to sustain yourself for the whole year, 
But the problem is that by the end of that second half of the year, you're broke again. You've run through all the money you made in the first half of the year. And you're now, I mean, broke. Um, and so you have to go back to the consulting and you have to hope that you've made enough there. To, so it's, it's a bit, of, it's a tight rope uh, act. Um, but in any case, it worked well enough that I found, for a long time, I really did feel, and this is maybe worth pointing out, sharing with people who are undergoing this themselves. As I put it at one point, I felt like I was riding atop um, uneven circus ponies. You know, that, 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 that guy who races through the big top with one foot on one pony and one on the other, except in my case, they weren't quite even. So it was a very uh, dynamic and, and, um, and unstable uh, experience. Um, and it took forever. And I think it may have. So I was really unhappy a lot of the time because I thought, when I was doing the consulting, I was betraying my anthropology. When I was doing the anthropology, I was neglecting the source of my income. I had all kinds of conflicts. After a while, and this for me is the, was, it was the good news, you end up, the person you are when doing the anthropology for consulting purposes is the same person you are when doing anthropology um, for anthropological purposes. And, and God knows what terrible compromises have, have happened to make that symmetry suddenly possible, but it was suddenly possible. So there was no longer in this sense of passing back and forth between discontinuous, um, deeply uh, dissimilar worlds. So, yeah, so that's the origin story, is starting as an academic, going to the museum, thinking, hey, I can do this consulting. I can be a free, uh, a self-funding, freestanding anthropologist. And the great thing is, I came to think, well, I thought this straight away, was, listen, when I'm doing the consulting, I'm collecting data. I mean, I've got people saying, you know, can you solve this problem? Can you examine um, this data? Um, and, 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 of course, you want to do that as well as you can. But it's all American culture because these, in my case, were all American companies. So it's like... You were in the field 12 months a year, um, and you were getting, you wouldn't have much time always to examine. I mean, somebody would say, well, uh, Google recently said, well, you have a look at the American home and household and householder, um, which I did. And all of that, and like, I hope um, I did a good job kind of reporting on that, but it's absolutely fascinating for my own anthropological purposes. You as an anthropologist are the beneficiary of this bifurcated world, but I think the client is too. The client is, it gets to be the benefit of your anthropology. And I think of a lot of, a lot of the people, the consulting people with whom anthropologists compete, practice this kind of weird sort of amnesia. Um, they do focus groups for somebody and then they erase the slate as if they've never talked to somebody about breakfast cereal or Detroit automobiles before. Um, and they start all over again, which means um, the clock must start all over again, which means they can't draw upon 20 years of experience often talking to people about about automobiles. And that seems to me a tragic, uh, a, a tragically missed opportunity. So to the extent that we are, see, and I guess the, the other key piece here that's critical for anthropologists, and this is a, an opportunity we have that others don't have, I think, is that um, to do anthropology at all, certainly to do it well, you want to cast the net wide, right? So you're studying the American home and you go in and you start asking a series of questions, but you don't know what you need to know. So you're asking about everything that crosses your path. And of course, if you're doing the work in home, you have all the, the advantage of sitting there in someone's living room and listening to them talk and watching them 
watching how they make that cup of coffee they've just offered you and watching how the you know how everything all the material culture around you is configured so you have all those all this data comes pouring in only re some relatively small part of it will be useful for the client um, but you can't tell which part that is. So you cast the net wide, you collect all the data you can, but it means that you walk away um, from the interview and the larger project, having satisfied the requirements of the client, but collected a vast amount of data that then is yours to treasure as an anthropologist. And, and I don't think, you know, no client has ever said to me, well, I want you to practice amnesia or I want you to forget what you've learned on my behalf. They just want good work. Thanks for sharing all that. So there's a few things in there that are of interest to me. So um, I'll try to remember to come back to all of them. But first, you kind of made the joke about, you know, God knows what kind of compromises occurred where, you know, the, the sort of two halves come together. Um, do you really think there's any uh, compromises that have like a negative connotation or do you do you really just think like you, you sort of realize how uh, in doing the consulting work you can actually make it work for both parties? I, I think you can. Part of the trick for me was <laughs> I was such a bad uh, writer in I, I really didn't know how to write coming even coming into graduate school and I remember telling my my girlfriend of the time, um, that I was struggling with this paragraph. This was Sunday afternoon. We were going for a walk, and she looked at me in horror and said, "You were working on that paragraph Friday, so I'd spent an entire weekend on a single paragraph." That's how bad I was as a writer. So I spent. That is one of the good things about consulting is that you're forced to stand and deliver. Right? It's data conclusion, data conclusion, and you're just pelting to get to completion. So I think that forced me to get better at. At analysis, I'm better at coming to conclusions, but it also forced me to get better at writing. So, and that's, I think, the key. I think I now have a, it's for people to judge, but I think I have a prose style that's nimble enough to capture complexity, um, even as it's um, capable of delivering the, the big conclusions, the larger points, the larger picture um, in a simple, straightforward, accessible way. So, so I think. The compromises are inevitable um, in the early days, but they diminish as you get better at your craft. As you get better at the anthropology, you get better at the consulting, and especially you get better at the rhetorical instruments you use to express express them both. And that's when I think um, you end up being able. And, and again, I may be I may be kidding myself, but I think you're eventually you're in a position to handle. Ideas as delicate and complex and, and challenging as uh, as most of the ideas that cross your desk as an anthropologist in this new quite flexible uh, prose. Um, and so, uh, for me, that's the solution. Whether I, again, I may be just kidding myself, but that's that's what I'm hoping is true. And how about on the consulting side, like not the writing portion, but say. Um you know, given that you've been doing this for 25 years, what have you learned in more of like the client management aspects of this and like, you know, selling anthropology and the value of it? Yeah. I think in the early days, I was a method of last resort. People would, in fact, the first project I did, I did for Chrysler. They had just bought Jeep. They were selling more Jeeps in New York City than in, 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 in the Southwest. Um, and their notion was, wait, what's happening here? 
Uh, this is an off-road vehicle. That's why people buy it. Why are they buying it to drive in New York City? And they tried everything. They tried all of the methods that normally work for them. And they thought, well, you know, what have we got to lose? Let's just hire an anthropologist. Um, and I was lucky enough to be that anthropologist. So um, that's, uh, I think, the uh, that's the solution here is that expectations were low. In the early days, expectations were, were low because you were the method of last resort. Um, and now I think, I, well, the game has changed so many times in the time I've been acting as a consultant. But in the old days, people would phone me up and say, listen, we have a problem. Will you come in and help us work through to a solution? Some years later, they'd say, listen, um, we're not quite sure what the solution is what the problem is. Will you come in and, and, and help us figure out what the problem is? So that's a beautiful shift and very good, I think, for anthropologists, because I, I, I think this much is, is indubitable. Uh, and, and that is we're very good with messy data sets and, 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 and places where the outlines of the problem are, are not clear. And there's just an awful, you know, there's just a, a complexity of the data just stacks up and overlaps and presents itself in a difficult manner, we're really good at that pattern detection, I think. You know, a lot of people who are trained in a, in a more positivist tradition hope for something that's much more carefully delineated. And we would argue, I think, that in that moment of delineation, they destroy the opportunity for insight that, strictly speaking, is their job. And the nice thing about anthropologists is that they can contend with noise in the system, all this complexity, um, until a pattern begins to emerge, and then they can extract or draw out that pattern again without damaging the other possibilities for insight or 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 the 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 deliverable itself. Um, so I think um, that shift for the client give us the solution to give us the problem is useful. And what's happened more recently? I'm not very good at, uh, but maybe the last five ten years. Clients will just sometimes phone up and say, "Forgive my language." Well, I'll use I'll use parliamentary language. Um, they'll they'll phone up and say, "We don't know what in the Dickens is happening here. Our world has just gone kablooey, right? It's just there's an order of dynamism. Our industry is being disrupted. We're we think we have some idea of what the problem is, but honestly, we're not sure. Please, would you come in?" So we move from problem to solution to WTF. Um, right. Um, and again, I think we're very good at, um, uh, 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 I think, I think we actually flourish in a world where things are not clear. And that's where, you know, a lot of people who have come out of certain of the fields that shape, uh, the C-suite or the, the managers, uh, with whom we're dealing come from intellectual traditions that are much more about you know, buttoning down the problem and delineating things most precisely. And I think that's our uh, big advantage is that, that, you know, we're happy um, uh, managing with, with messy data sets. So building on that, you know, while it's true that, you know, we, we seem to be skilled in that, it also seems to be the case in my experience that you can't necessarily just walk and be like, you know, well, it's complicated, right? You, you still need to provide some guidance that's a little bit more definitive for them. I guess is you know, is there any insight in there from your your years of practice of um, what it is 
that clients are looking for, you know, appreciating that we're coming from a world where we are involving messy data. Like, you know, how do you make the leap really from the messy to to what they want to hear? Yeah, I think it's part of a question of of culture specified now. I mean, let's talk about culture because it is so much of what we bring to the table and it is so much a cause of consternation for the client who often is not quite sure what culture is, even after we tell them, even after we demonstrate, even as we create value by applying a cultural approach, they're still a little bit, you know, confused and and unhappy with the idea. So culture is the is the thing we bring to the table. And one piece of culture, I think, this to Put it in a particular way is to say um, culture is a set of uh, understandings that the the respondent has of the world, many of which exist within them, within consciousness, um, as a relatively deeply buried assumptions. Right. So there are things they know about the world that are defined by their corporate culture, so to speak, or the. Um, the engineering school out of which they came or the B school to which they went, you know, their intellectual worlds are shaped by a series of understandings. And then, of course, they're in place for 20 years as a manager. Um, uh, Various managerial philosophies come and go. Um, Things happen. Crises happen. Um, The sky falls, you know, in various moments. And they are shaped and reshaped. As a result of which, they end up with a set of understandings that are buried um, beneath the surface of consciousness. And so they're active in shaping how they see the world, but they're not always, and and this is true for all of us all the time, for some purpose, um, they can't always tell you what assumption is active at that moment they make that determination or that decision. Um, And so part of our work, I think, is doing the, you know, I like to think of it as kind of ferret mode, um, digging down through the surface of consciousness and figuring out what, I mean, very often I think what we do as anthropologists is report the assumptions that are active in the life of the consumer as that consumer embraces a product or an innovation or, or fails to do so. And we can say, oh, this is what they're thinking. Here's the idea that shapes their response to that new iPhone. Um, but, but just as often, I think we're doing an unofficial anthropology with the people who have hired us and we're listening, we're reverse engineering, but I'm mixing my metaphors liberally here, but we are reverse engineering what they're telling us. And we're going, oh, that's what you think is going on. Oh, that's who you think the consumer is. Oh, here's what you think the, the, the opportunity, the, 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 the black swans are, the blue oceans are. This is how your world is constituted as a, as a cultural totality. Um, so it, we're using our knowledge of culture to capture those buried assumptions, both on the client side and the and the consumer side. You've now mentioned, you know, you kind of said it like in the last five to ten years that there's been some WTF moments, and certainly, you know, it, it seems like there's a lot going on at the moment, creating you know a fair amount of disruption. And so, you know, is there any big things that are popping out for you in your work right now that you see? I, I, and maybe, you know, I know you mentioned, well, I mentioned the Griff in the, uh, in the intro, and I believe, you know, it said that that's helped spot sort of the rise of Donald Trump. So uh, first, I guess, is, you know, what trends do you see at this moment in American culture? And then maybe we can pivot to the Griff. Let me just start with the Griff, because that will maybe lay the, set the table. Um, the, at some point, 
we talked about sort of the evolution of my practice, and some part of that evolution is moving from um, a relatively still and settled world to one that's more stormy and, and noisy, and and that's that sh- shift from problem to solution to WTF. Um, and 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 so it's it's so I said to myself, look, what I found myself doing, what I saw my clients doing was. They would go, oh, this world is complicated and difficult. And they would latch on to the latest managerial philosophy. Or, you know, they would bring in a consultant who would blind them with one science or another. Or they would fix on a particular trend. Or they would get a feeling they now had an understanding of, of Gen Z. Or, right, they'd, they'd get some partial knowledge um, that would enable them to figure out what was happening in the world. And that was always, almost always ended in tears and, and, and mascara uh, streaming um, because, uh, uh, and, and that's not a gender, it sounds like a gender specific uh, reference. It is not. Um, uh, as a result of which, and, and so I thought, wow, these people are kind of thrashing about for s- solutions. Um, and then I thought, um, I'm thrashing about for solutions, right? This is what I do. I come up with an, I do an ethnography and I come up with one understanding or I, I'm in a position to um, figure out um, one piece of the puzzle, the Humpty Dumpty kind of assemblage. You know, I get a couple of pieces and I put them together and I begin to think, oh, I've figured this out, only to get distracted by yet another body of data or analytical opportunity. And I would forget where I started. And so again, it was this amnesia problem. I was not able to. Um, carry with me all the things I thought I'd learned about American culture. Um, nor was I, nor was I, nor, nor did I have a fix on all the things that I thought were happening that potentially could transform that culture. So that's what the Griff is. It's among other things a, a board, a big visual display of roughly 280 things that are happening at the moment, and many of which are just tiny, um, uh, but. You know, you can't, in the early days, everything looks obscure and, and implausible. Uh, so you, you tend to pick, some of them are huge. Some of them, you know, one of the, one of the pieces is individualism, which is one of the great, you know, foundations of American culture. Um, but I'm gr- glad I have it on the board because having it on the board keeps me thinking about it as something that I need to keep in front of me, something I need to, I need to see. And I was just collecting some data last week in which, in from the margins came the, the ghost of individualism, and it settled down in the middle of an interview, and it was animating this uh, two, two people, both of them roughly 24, 25, embracing a kind of individualism to solve the most vexing problem in their lives right now. And it's not a kind of possessive individualism or selfish individualism, or you know, people like to beat up on individualism as the as the as the the um, the thing that's most pro- problematical about a, a first world capitalist economy. This is a much simpler kind of uh, uh, individualism, um, but very much at odds with some of the prevailing prevailing currents. Um, and there it was now active and and uh, so anyhow that was thrilling to see. It's just thrilling to see our culture at work that in that way. All of this is to say, in order to work. F- well for clients who need a bigger picture and in order to not 
to do the thing that they're sometimes doing, which is to practice amnesia and to you know race from one thing to another. Um, uh, this a, a, a bigger picture. Uh, the Griffith name, I should say, will make more sense. Um, it's named for the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, which has all of the heavens painted within it. Uh, it's a beautiful WPA piece of architecture that sits on a bluff. It's just a magnificent. It's probably the most beautiful building in America. That's a that's a, a bold claim, but I think in this case it might be true. But in any case, it sits on this promontory and looks out over Los Angeles, which of course is one of the places that produces popular and contemporary culture in such volume. So, so the Griffith is named for the Griffith Observatory. So that's the idea. Try to get everything up and present so that you're in a position to um, both to spot things and then to look for patterns and interconnections that might otherwise escape. So what are the major prevailing patterns that you're seeing at this moment that you're most excited about or keeping an eye on? And I know you said there's you know a couple hundred, but if you, know, if you had to just pick a few. Certainly the American home is changing at speed. And I did a lot of ethnographies chiefly for myself during COVID, which were interesting. And um, chiefly female heads of household were acting as moms, were um, reinventing the family to get the family through COVID. And they were doing so with, um, with, with astonishing um, kind of skill and diplomatic efficacy. Um, and uh, as a result of which, I think this is when it's fun to make predictions in this business, but in 10 years, I think we'll go to a restaurant on some evening, like a Wednesday or Thursday. We're in Washington, D.C., and we'll go to a restaurant. The restaurant will be filled with mothers and daughters, mothers in their 70s and daughters in their 30s and their 40s. And what we will be looking at is uh, these dyads that were created during COVID when, as mothers put it to me, they said, oh, my, my girls are coming home. During COVID, kids came back from college. They came out of, uh, they were released from the captivity of, 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 of social media of one kind or another. Um, and suddenly the mothers had their kids home, but chiefly the boys often disappeared into bedrooms to play games of one kind, you know, videos of one kind or another. But the, but the girls uh, ended up you would, I would see them locally. That was my first clue was you see mothers and daughters walking down the street, falling into this conversation, which was, uh, you know, mother said, you know, my chief mode of communicate, communicating with my daughter before COVID was through the rearview mirror in my car. Like I'd be driving them to soccer practice and I would be looking at them in the mirror and we'd be having the, the conversation of the day would be happening that way. With COVID, everyone comes home. Everyone gathers around the table. Mothers had been creating, and this is from some years ago, so earlier research, but mothers were creating these uh, the, in the island of the great room. They would put up three or four versions of the evening meal to the extent that they were the ones responsible for that evening meal. And they were accommodating like a variety of culinary preferences, keto and, 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 and one thing and another. And, um, and, the, and so what kids would do is come up to the island, choose the meal that had effectively been customized for them, and retire either to the great room or their bedrooms. But that mealtime had, 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 had come apart in some sense. And what you heard some mothers saying during COVID was, listen, that's, it's going to be one meal for one family, for one conversation. 
for this table at the same time every evening. We will return to an old pattern of, of having dinner. It sounded like a deliberate kind of installation of a, a, a matrifocality. The mother's just saying, I, I'm not acting on now effectively staff for my family. Um, I'm sort of in charge of this family and its mealtime and the conversation and the interactions. All of that stuff is now returned to one place, one time. Um, and that's, they were, they were arguing, listen, COVID is a desperate time and these are emergency measures. Um, but, I, but I think they, especially the mothers and the daughters, as they found one another in these conversations, um, built these fabulously rich connections which, um, you know, are beginning to attenuate now that households have spread back out or now dispersed again, but I think we'll, we'll persevere. So that's one big piece of, you know, well, what's the joke about the weather in Ireland? If, if, if you don't like the weather of the moment, wait a little bit, um, it'll change, right? And, and that's true of American culture, uh, but this COVID moment was an exceptional, was an exceptional period to see uh, uh, see a transformation happening there. So that's one thing. I guess a performance culture, I sometimes think of it as, I think for a long time we were dominated by, so most of the elites have been dying over the last 40, 50 years. Um, the, the elite that survived um, was uh, the celebrity culture, right? These be, and, and you can see there are a number of reasons why they flourished and other elites um, began to fail, um, but um, and we have our doubts about whether we should be celebrating uh, celebrities, but but we do. And when you're raised in a celebrity culture, and you come to know these people on the screen, I think you're inclined to come to believe that a social performance is a critical way in which you define yourself and present yourself. Um, it's the way. So uh, you know, Tom Peters had that notion of brand you. Um, uh, some years ago where he said, listen, nobody cares about you. I think this was the 90s. Um, nobody cares about you. If you want to flourish in the world or just survive in the world, you have to build your own brand. And self-branding became the thing. I think what we're seeing in the last few years is something closer to performance me. That the new path to flourishing in the world is not building a brand, but, but creating a performance on TikTok or Facebook or, or, or YouTube. Um, and, you know, the, the, the most conspicuous case in point here would be the influencers who have, have flourished on, on TikTok. But they, too, now are kind of the contemporaries who inspire a generation of kids to say, well, that's it then, right? It's, it's my it's bringing a performance to public space that really earns me admiration, uh, friendship, um, um, possibly you know, um, uh, uh, the opportunity of getting into the right school or, 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 or whatever. So that's, that would be a, a second piece. You know, an interesting thing about that is while there, you know, is probably arguably some reasons for concern around some of those trends, it almost seems as if there's a little bit of a need for that, though, in the anthropology community. You know, do you do you agree with me that as a as a discipline we need to do better at, at sort of branding to discipline or branding ourselves as consultants? And you know, any thoughts on how a younger well, and I guess any anthropologist, but anybody who's sort of trying to break in might leverage 
you know, some of the lessons learned from influencers and, you know, and the performative nature that you're just speaking of? Yeah, no, absolutely. You've absolutely nailed it. And I've, that's sort of a transition that I had to go through that I didn't mention a, a moment ago, but it's absolutely true that when I began, I looked, I was bashful and Canadian and, and shy and quite painfully so. And I would do presentations that somebody said, you know, you remind me of the guy who's trying to get the New Testament on a grain of rice, <laughs> like way too many words on the screen. And I would be looked like performing, doing a mumble chord performance in front, you know, with my hand in front of my mouth. Uh, and I had to just, it was very painful getting, just learning to take that stage with just full confidence and just start I mean, you might as well be bulk, belting out show tunes. You just have to have total conviction in what you have to say. There is a kind of, I came to understand that there's a, there are actually some cultural dynamics at work here. Uh, I, my wife is Italian-American, and I was the other day watching her, her brother, my brother-in-law, in a social situation it was a bit kind of tricky, I thought. And he has a kind of what I think to be, and I hope no one will take offense of this, but I think there is a kind of an Italian-American comfort with sociality and social situations. And he has it. And he has it, he has enough of it that he can go into a difficult situation and it can go badly. And he's so socially graceful and adroit that he can fix, he can repair a conversation that's coming undone because he's that confident and he's in possession of all the skills he needs to do that. And I didn't have any of those skills. And, you know, I just thought getting on stage and I just thought, you know, I'm dying here. I'm dying up here, I think is the correct phrasing. Um, and eventually you do enough of it um, that you get that kind of comfort with the situation. So anyone can say anything to you at any moment. Well, for, we haven't talked about improv and and anthropology, but I think that's one of the critical things that serves us well, is that you'll have a client just say something to you, and you just think, where did that come from? What can that possibly mean? And you get good enough at just fetching, you know, picking things out of the air and turning them, you know, swallows grace, you hope, swallows grace, and playing them back. And even as you're kind of running through a general scheme of what an answer might be you're you're configuring to suit this client and what you think she meant when she said what she just said and what she said five minutes ago that kind of i can fix this however complicated or tricky it gets i can react in the spirit of improv and make this work i think that's um that comes to you but it for me it came quite slowly because i just absolutely not a natural um, but now I really like being on the stage. You know, I do these culture camps and I just, I sort of like it because I just, it's really fun. And it's fun to, it's fun to engage in ideation that is almost totally emergent, right? You're not even quite sure what you're going to say next, but you're, you're tapping that stream of spontaneous ideation as it happens within. And you're trying to piece together, connect that to what the question somebody asked five minutes ago. All that stuff is great fun. Again, I don't think it comes to a, I think what you have to ask yourself, what, who does anthropology attract? And, it, and, and I think it's probably, without having done any research here, my guess would be many more introverts than extroverts, right? I don't know what the extroverts go into, but it's not necessarily anthropology. Um, 
And uh, so, so I think probably it's true to say that maybe anthropology uh, graduate schools should should engage in way more um, improv training, not of a literal kind, but some figurative kind that might might really work well. But then it's just it's it for people listening for whom this does not come naturally. I, I guess I just want to reassure them that almost certainly it will eventually come naturally or unnaturally. I mean, it will eventually become part of who you are. And once it does, it's it's a real pleasure. It's part of the fun of doing consulting work because you're not as we are in the anthropo- anthropological part of our discourse. You know, craft, ca- crafting and recrafting every thought and phrase. We're just letting it rip, and that's quite fun. So you just use the word crafting there, and when you're talking about improv and sort of give and take, I uh, yeah, I can't but help think of right. So the new book, um, so Return of the Artisan, um, you know, so you know, when you when you spoke of improv there, I was thinking of an artisan in the arts in which like maybe you're working with again some kind of material where it is a give and take in that you don't always know how it's going to go. Maybe some other artisanal products, or or maybe less of that, you know. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they're all about craft, and it is has been. It seems like a rise in now, not something I've studied, but it, it certainly just seems like a rise, uh, a very rising trend in the U.S. Uh, you see it on labels everywhere these days. You know, artisanal, handmade, uh, other maybe symbolically related though slightly different concepts of organic and local. And um, so you want to maybe just tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came to this field of study, a little bit about the book. I began with in error. I remember years and years ago, and I mean like the seventies, maybe um, I remember somebody coming up, a friend of mine buttonholing me and telling me that the future would be artisanal. And I thought, girl, you're a kook. This cannot happen. This will not happen. So I had that early moment of an introduction to the future, and I could not see it, and I just thought it couldn't ever happen. And so chastened, I have paid attention to the trend as as it develops. Um, And it's astounding to see how fast it's developed. And the book is partly an attempt to, to kind of track how it, you know, moves from hippies in in, in San Francisco, and it jumps the bay, and it's Alice Waters creates a restaurant in 1971, Chez Panisse, and creates a diaspora of chefs who go across the country and create, in their turn, wave upon wave of foodies. And eventually, you get this, this the migration, the diffusion of this new approach to food and, and, and production and transportation and, and, and retail and, um, 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 it, it's at one point, in the book, I talk about what it was like to go to a resort in 1955, and I paint a picture of who you are and your family that's just moved from Brooklyn out to the suburbs on Long Island, and you're, you're living in one of those split-level houses, and you're living in a riot of, 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 of uh, a built form of material culture that's you know prizes artificial everything, and, and the pride of place is the TV set, and this is a family that feasting on the new consumer culture and for its the vacation, you'd go to a resort where you would um, um, consume heroic uh, quantities of sugar and fat and salt and chlorine and sun and alcohol and nicotine 
Um, and it's a wonder that anybody survi survived these vacations. I mean, in retrospect, they look like they look like desperate acts of self-destruction. Anyhow, so that's where we were after World War II, right? In, 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 in the throes of the enthusiasm created by the consumer culture and all that prosperity after World War II, we somehow got from there to a culture where people were so much more vastly particular about what they eat and from whom they buy. And, and we have a, a guy in my little town, Connecticut, who runs the cheese store, and he's he's kind of he's our idea of a local celebrity. Every, everyone, anyone who has an opportunity to drop Ken's name into a conversation, drops his name into a conversation because he's a kind of local god. Um, so that's interesting to get from the fifties to the the twenties. Um, so that was the point of the book. And um, yeah, so literally yesterday, no, sorry, Friday. This is Sunday. I um, went to the, my local farmer's market and I set up a table and I sold the book as if it were something, um, you know, like a ear of corn, um, which is really fun to do. Um, and it, there were two groups who were res especially responsive. Well, who am I kidding? Nobody was really responsive, but there are two groups that are sort of responsive. One was the um, mothers of uh, kids who have, are now involved in an artisanal um, endeavor. And, and the other was kids who are involved in artisanal endeavor who want a book that they can give to their parents to say, listen, this is a thing. Here's the thing it is, or one version of the thing it is. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, oh, but the book really got started thanks to um, a conversation I had with Sam Ford, a guy I knew at MIT when I was in loose orbit around that institution. He was a student there, and we were talking about um, the incidence of uh, unemployment in the, in the center of the country and the extent to which that drove some people to opioid abuse. This was just as the data was coming in 10 years ago, the data was coming in about just how much addiction and death was being created by opioid addiction. So he and I sat down and we said, and I've been thinking about this artisanal thing, and I said, you know, this, the artisanal option is, is it can't, it, this is for people, so the picture was, people get pushed out of an industrial a job in the industrial economy, and they say to themselves, well, that's probably the last industrial job I'm ever going to have. And, and they would fall into despair and sometimes into opioid abuse. So what we wanted to do was create uh, an alternative that said, look, this won't replace industrial. You will never make as much money from this as you did um, as an industrial employee. But this is something that can be part of your gig economy, um, and it's part, it, it can be something that connects you to the community and it's, it can be something that puts food in your own table and, and you can make stuff that allows you to create, a, participate in a gift economy. There are lots of advantages here. Most important, I think, we hoped, was that it gives you that sense of I'm in charge of my world and I have this sense of that I've got something that's working and, and growing and um, so that was the that was the point, and so we did. Sam is from Kentucky, so I did some of the research for the book in Kentucky. He and I did it together, and uh, so that was extremely interesting to see the world of Kentucky. It's, it, there's this beautiful kind of connection between uh, an individualism on the ground and a kind of dome of reciprocity above, and you could hear Kentuckians had managed to bring these two quite separate ideologies together 
um, so that they had a sense of being quite, sometimes quite fiercely freestanding. This is who I am. These are the limits and the boundaries and barriers of who I am. And, and uh, even as they would say, but of course, when I engage in this artisanal activity, I'm making something that, I, that creates benefits and goods for the larger community. So I thought about it as a kind of a grid below and a dome above. Um, uh, two impulses at work there. Anyhow, sorry, I'm blabbing. But um, so that was another thing that that persuaded me. This was an interesting topic. And do you think you know? Does the same meaning of artisanal and guide those who want to produce and those who want to consume those products? Yeah, that's a good question. I think probably the producer has. The whole bundle, and the consumer has sort of some part thereof, um, and that they love the idea, if for only a moment, of participating in a world that is handmade and has human scale and has this kind of is personalized and intimate and and um, uh, so more deeply social than anything you experience going to a grocery store, participating in a, in a typical consumer economy. Um, uh, so all of that's at work the whole bundle's at work in, in, in the life of the producer because he or she is engaging in all of these activities in a very particular daily intimate sense these values and ideologies are getting played out um, daily and then for the I think for the consumer it's a chance to swim in and out of, swim into that world, participate in that world. You, you, you go to the local cheese store here in Connecticut and you meet with Ken and you have this experience of artisanal uh, consumption. Um, and the great, I mean, this is why it's such a powerful idea. You talk to Ken about what he thinks he's doing and he says, um, he'll, he, you know, he'll give you the traditional understanding of what an artisanal economy is. But then you want to step further, which, you know, I just had that anthropological moment where you think, oh, my God, this is going straight into the notebook and you can just see what it's going to look like on the page. And more to the point, your, your sense of American culture is changing before your very eyes. He said, listen, my, uh, I know the way what people do in this little town uh, in Connecticut uh, to celebrate a Saturday night. They invite one another to their homes and to tables that are groaning with plate and and silver and um, you know cutlery and um, wine glasses and it's it's status display among other things. However sincere and genuinely interested they are in their neighbors, there's a certain amount of very typical American uh, status emulate status uh, competition going on here. And Ken says. I'm not interested in that, and they shouldn't be interested in that. Here's what should happen on the Saturday night. You have people over to your, the, the great room in your home, at the center of which is the island, and here's what should happen on the island. You should have two or three or four exquisitely chosen and crafted cheeses and several bottles of exquisitely chosen uh, wines, um, and then people should stand around this island and talk to one another about things that matter uh, in their lives and in the life of the nation. And that's that's what a Saturday night should be. And I said to him at some point, I said, Ken, you're, you're, you're kind of 
anarchist? <laughs> are you kind of like, aren't you sort of attacking the fun, some of the fundamentals of life in this town? Um, and he said, yeah, oh, no, totally. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, and I don't think anarchist was the word we settled on. I might have said you're a pirate, but I don't think that's right either. But I said, um, I, I phoned him up later, and I, as I wrote it up, I realized how, in some sense, seditious his cheese store actually was, that it really <laughs> intended to bring a kind of social revolution to this small town. And I said, Ken, you know, this is the way it's writing on the page, and this is the way, unless you say something, this is the way it's going to go into the book. And I don't, you know, I, th I thought, worst case, he ends up thinking, um, he ends up losing business because people, in the unlikely case that they read the book, think, who do, does he think he is, right? I'm never buying cheese there again. Um, and I said, you know, so I want you to, if you don't want me to write this up this way, I won't. And he said, no, no, this is what I'm here for. So he knew exactly what his do he was doing and meant most sincerely to do it just that way. Have you found many other producers who are sort of interested you know, or I guess the question I'm going to ask is, are they interested in tearing down these sort of industrial structures or, you know, frequently is that the case or are they more so just interested in doing what they want to do? I think they want to do what they want to do because it has all of these social and cultural and anthropological implications. Because, yes, there's a certain pleasure to the manuality, if you want, of artisanal work, right, of the fact that it's you in, in you who put it beautifully uh, in your opener about this kind of contact between the material, the person and the material, and you watch to see how the material breaks uh, or falls out or together. Um, and so there's all of the abundant pleasure of being an artisan. It's unalienated labor in a certain kind of way, right? It's it's very intimate connection between you and the material and your craft. And in the book, I talk about this uh, to remember to come back to this. Um, you know, I was I was in Canada looking at a church, and this Scottish guy comes up, and he's staring at the church too, and he says, um, "I think I know um, that the people who designed this church in like the 1880s were from Scotland. In fact, I think they were from Edinburgh. In fact, I think I know the neighborhood in Edinburgh they came from. These are artisans speaking to one another across 100 years. It's like fantastic, fantastically unalienated, right? So somebody has created a stone church and written some part of their presence into this church, and it's still visible like 100 uh, 200, 150 years later. So there's all the, all the intimacy of that. But then they can see, not all of them, and not all of them the same way, but I think lots of artisans can see the social and cultural changes that the artisanal engagement sets in train. So, I mean, everybody understands that the, the meals we serve in our own homes and, and, and the way we, and the kinds of meals we have in restaurants profoundly shaped by Alice Waters right over 50 years. So it's like, I think that, yeah, so I think it's both. You know, as a maybe a closing thought on the book, what would you, is there any guidance you would give to companies who, you know, may be trying to use some of these labels, you know, to their own benefit, even when it may not be, you know, truly uh, true to how they're producing them? Yeah, there's, there's no point pretending here not least because, 
no one who's genuinely artisanal is faking it, and 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 they're never going to accept your faking it. Um, so I mean, there's been a kind of sort of charming relationship where brands echo with what's happening in the culture and they quote it. So they'll use music or images or or uh, people or um, events that are chime in some sense with skater culture or the hippie revolution or whatever's happening in the culture at the moment. The branding world is, is responsive um, uh, in a way that I think is sometimes seen as, and sometimes is, inauthentic and other times it's just a weird kind of this is in the air so so this is so we can't help but bring this to our execution of the ad um but when it looks like there was there was a cheese a national cheese company that that actually had uh, a family playing in the backyard growing their own vegetables and the kids had were all muddy and they were urchins and having fun and like totally not a suburb man. This is the real life. This is a real family. They're having real vegetables and real cheese fits in perfectly. Except they're not real cheese. They're industrial cheese. Thank you very much. So I think everyone just goes, oh please. So there's some ways you can. Oh, so there is a way of doing this, I think, and that's sort of uh, um, understanding that um, that the world that people care about now matters more when it has. When it is handmade and it is um, uh, human scale and it has the kind of structural properties of the artisan, but you can't claim them for yourself. You can support them in other people, and that's I think all mostly the the best play. And you look at uh, American Express, for instance, has I forget what they call it, something like Small Business Saturday or something. And I'm not sure when they do it, but they do it at some. Maybe they do it every Saturday. I don't know. Um, but that was them. You know, this is a gigantic credit card company that just said, "Look, um, what really matters here are tiny merchants of one kind or another, and we will support them." So that's a, a nice way of getting involved without being seen to be helping yourself to the cultural resources on offer. Yeah, that's, that's a good suggestion. So, and if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, where would be a good place to look you up? It's Grant twenty seven at gmail.com. Well, Grant, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.